Hey friends, special announcement before we start this week's show. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B, json.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. I'm over the moon excited for today's guest. This is one of the reasons why you start a podcast, so you can talk to people like this. So today's guest is a three-time OUA Coach of the Year with the York University Lions. He coached Mark Heath and John Child at the 1996 Olympics, where they won their bronze medal. He was the director of the Elite Beach Volleyball Club. He spent 11 seasons with the Chilean national team. He's the author of Playing Under the Gun, and there's so much more I could say in his resume, but it's time to start the interview. Please welcome to the show, Hernan Humana. Hernan, thanks for doing this. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for making the time for us. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. So let's let's jump into it. I think people who are familiar with your book would maybe know this, but if they're not, they should go out and get a copy. But I think... Growing up in Chile, you were quite the athlete with track and field, basketball, volleyball, everything else you were up to. So do you remember just your relationship with sport and how young you were when you started playing and realized you could be pretty good at some of these? Sure. I, I, I remember. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the playing under the gun because the second edition just came out. And so I have plenty of books here in boxes at home ready to to sell. And so if people are interested, you know, they can contact me and and there they go. The second edition it's, uh, will be on its way. The, the story I, I, is fascinating. My, my father, uh, I, I shouldn't call him my stepfather, but my stepfather died just last week. So this is very fresh. And I, I, the reason I'm mentioning is because obviously he was quite present in my life. Uh, I met him when I was around four years old. And, and then he married my mother when he was I was around five. So, but he was quite instrumental in, in a couple of things. The, the, the town where I was growing up, we were a working class town. This was a, we were poor. I have to to say we were not a middle class town at all. This was a workers working in a steel company, like in the uh, in any small town here in Ontario, but or in Canada. But but the difference is that. The salaries were not the greatest, and, but it was one big advantage that I had, uh, or a couple of them. One was that the company itself, the steel company, had all kind of um, uh, sport uh, facilities, uh, stadium, gymnasiums, and, and we, the children of people working in the in the factory, in the, in the, in the company, had access to all these sport things. So although we were poor, 
we had access to stadiums and track and fields places and gymnasiums and and all of that was free we didn't have to pay for it it was it was given to us for free and so that's how i started when i was five i have a picture in, in fact you may remember i have a picture in the book kneeling in my first soccer team you know it's uh, uh playing soccer i was terrible by the way i was really bad but but the opportunity was there and then track and field came along and my grandfather who was uh, he was himself a track and field person in his youth i was very happy when i i enrolled in track and field and i did very well i remember one of the first contests i won uh, 60 meters we used to run 60 meters and high jump and long jump and you name it so so i i i think for me it was a bit of a sport became a way to protect myself, if you will. I, I was relatively shy. Uh, I, I was not uh, the most outgoing kid. I was also very skinny. So, um, you know, any bully could easily destroy me very, very fast. <laughs> so I had to learn how to run because running was one of the ways to save myself in those situations. And there were some rough kids in the neighborhood. They were pretty rough kids. So... Uh, to me, becoming good at sports was a, a way to gain some some respect. I will not emphasize too much that it was a lot of respect, but some and the ability to run. So, so there you have soccer, track and field. I played a game that is not very popular here. I've never seen it here, in fact. And that was roller hockey uh, with uh, those roller skates with four wheels. Uh, you know, not online. Anyhow, it was uh, it was like hockey, but but uh, with those uh, those skates, if you will. And I played that for a little while as well. It was expensive, but as I said, the company provided all that uh, all that, the facilities and the and the equipment. And then basketball, who was my my sport. Growing up, basketball became my love and my sport. And I was uh, again, I was not that good, but I was the tallest kid in the town. <laughs> so that uh, you know. Uh, the coaches were very excited with the fact that I was the tallest, but not so excited that I was so uncoordinated. Uh, they spent many hours, and I spent many hours, trying to learn the sport. It was uh, it was a long process, <laughs> but uh, but it paid off. I, I became we were national champions at one point, and I was calling to the national team in basketball. So basketball became you know a very uh, you know a nice sport for me. So yeah. Uh, and then the last sport was volleyball. That was the last sport that I uh, attempted. And it was the last year of high school that my physics teacher said, you know, I know you play basketball and you're pretty good at it, but come on, you know, try volleyball and you may jump higher if you try volleyball and for your basketball. So anyhow, that's how he, he phrased it to me. And I said, okay, well, let's try it. And again, I, because I was not very coordinated, I was terrible in the first few few you know weeks or months of, of volleyball. But eh, it, it got my heart. My, my heart went to, to volleyball. And, uh, and when I told the, the national team coach in basketball that I was quitting the team and I was playing full-time volleyball almost, he had a heart attack. I said, what do you mean? You're, you're so good at basketball. I said, well, somehow volleyball, and I haven't been able to put fully the finger on it. Why Why volleyball? Uh, when I was so much better at basketball at that point when I made the, the decision. And I had to say it was the people. The, the people in volleyball that I met were very nice. And basketball was far more ruthless, as you will. The people were tough. That was a tough sport. 
and, and the physical contact, you know, and, and not to say that I, I did enjoy that part, uh, the, the physical aspect of it, but, um, but it was something about volleyball and the people, as I said, that, that attracted me and, and made me uh, take the decision of playing volleyball and staying with volleyball. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. And excuse me, first of all, sorry for your loss to you and your family. And, and thank oh, you for sharing that you. as well. Uh, and we'll be sure to include uh, uh, your book playing under the gun in our show notes. So anyone listening can obviously get their own copy because it, it is a great read. So I am curious in my research, it says you played 11 years on the national team, but I remember you were still quite a young man when you moved to Canada. So how does the national team program work in Chile and were you selected? Is there a tryout? Like, do you remember when you were part of the national team? Like you mentioned, maybe in high school you were part of the basketball team like how does the national team structure work in Chile when you were you know deciding if you're going to play volleyball basketball because you played both at such a high level but it was similar than here and and uh, I finished uh, my high school I was 16 and a half so I was pretty young and I moved from my town I was very far away from the national team centers uh, which were in the capital city in Santiago uh, I was far south uh, and uh, so I, I moved to study at university in, in, in the capital city in Santiago, and, and they called me uh, that summer. Uh, it's similar than here. They, they have tryouts, and they call people, they see them, they scout them. So they had scouted me in, in, in basketball, at least, and so they invited me to the, to the national team tryout. But at the same time, they invited me to the... This was the junior team, by the way. It was not the senior team yet. So it was the junior team, and uh, but at the same time, they invited me to the junior uh, volleyball national team. So I had to, to make the decision. I couldn't be in both national teams. Uh, they trained uh, you know, as, as intensely as, as they do it here. So, so I had to make a decision, and, and that's when I decided volleyball. And uh, so I was very young. I was uh, 18, 18 when I joined the, the, the junior team. But also they invited me. I remember my first uh, game for the senior team. I was a junior player, but but I was invited to train at times with the senior team, and all my heroes were in the senior team. All all the people that I you know grew up admiring or, or looking up to them, and and um, and China came to play in this is 1971. China came to play in exhibition games with the senior team, and and so they invited me to train. I was 13. Okay in the roster and, and 12 were dressing so I was not even going to dress for the game but the last practice before the, the game with China one guy got hurt in the practice and so the coach said okay Hernan so you are dressing for the Chinese uh, against the Chinese I said, oh, wow okay I was so excited you can imagine that um, but I never expected that I was going to play I was I thought I was going to watch the game from the bench nice and easy you know and uh, and in the middle of the game, and, and, and this is this is a tremendous show in Chile. There is not a lot of um, opportunities to play an international uh, team. And, and so the, the, the gymnasium was a huge gymnasium. It was packed. You know, I remember a national television covering it. And so it was exciting. It was fun. So it was fun to be on the bench. But then all of a sudden, in the middle of the game, the coach goes, Hernan, go and warm up. They, they, they didn't call me Hernan, by the way. They called me Flaco. Flaco was my, my nickname. Flaco means skinny, by the way, which I'm not <laughs> any longer. I'm, I'm, I'm in two, 240 pounds right now, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, anyhow, so they, they, they called me to warm up, and I thought it was a mistake. Well, I, you know, I thought they were asking me to bring water or something like that. And, and so I, just, I stood kind of 
you know, attentive in the, on the bench to what do they want. And he goes, and the second time was, was a scream, go on, bloody warm up. So, okay, I got up, I start warming up. And, uh, and, uh, and so they, they made the substitution. I go in, in the front to, for, for a, a player that was not that tall from the Chilean team. And, uh, and I remember one of the first plays they said, for some reason they said a high ball, the, the Chinese team outside, and I, and I was in the middle and I jumped close my eyes and put the hands up and somehow the ball hit my hands and I got a slam <laughs> block and kind of the people went went ballistic. I didn't know what had happened. It was just, uh, and, and the commentators, my mom was uh, watching the, the game at home. Uh, she said that the commentators said, wow, this, uh, I don't, they didn't even know my name. Who is that fellow who just came in with long hair and you was skinny? Uh, oh, you won, you know, it's a, uh, um, so that was my my first uh, attempt at uh, at the senior national team. And from then on, I stayed with the team until I left. Uh, I left Chile in 1980. And to give uh, people an idea of your book and what to expect, the part that I found fascinating was your. If we fast forward a little bit, you're playing for the national team, and you essentially are disagreeing with the government and their the way they're handling situations and the way they're acting. And so there's a conflict there. And the one story I'll, I'll never forget, you told me that stadiums were being used essentially as as concentration camps, and there's there's blood in the locker room that you can see from other people. So just to give us a hint of what to expect with the book, do you remember how you felt in those moments where you're representing this country, but you really don't agree with with the principles that the leadership's showing, and just the the conflict you're having within yourself that you're playing sport at the highest level but for a country that you're you're really not proud to represent if that's fair to say that is very fair to say um i had uh, a lot of a big conflict it was i was dressing with a shirt that says chile on the front and 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 yet uh, chile was under a dictatorship and chile was uh, not well regarded uh, you know in the international community so it was not uh, an easy thing to, to, to do to put that shirt and, and my my um, the way I explained it to myself and, and to those around me as well was that uh, by wearing that shirt I was representing precisely those who were being killed and tortured and persecuted and, and, and those who had, had to leave the country like my family my family left uh, the country in 1974 um, and so it's um, to me, it was a matter of if I'm going to stay, I'm going to play, and I'm going to be clearly against what the regime is is standing for. Um, and and one of the first games under the dictatorship, this was in 1973. So I had been with the national team for three years by then. And uh, in one of the first games, I remember going to. Um, this was a, an exhibition game in the National Stadium. This was a, and, and we went to the change rooms and, and uh, yeah, they have tried to clean it and paint it uh, because they released, or not released, they moved all the prisoners from the National Stadium to other concentration camps further from the city. And uh, I remember walking in there and, and looking at the corners of the change room and it was still blood left in the corners there. And it, it was... I don't remember warming up. I don't remember playing. I, I have a vague idea. And, and I've been talking to some of my friends who were a part of that, that group as well. Um, one of them is, is in California now. And, and, and I was talking to, and, and uh, because it was men and women. And, and she said, you know what? I have no 
collection. I know we walk into the place. Uh, I know we, we dress up and play something, but I have no memory of warming up or doing ball warm-up or hitting the ball or playing, even playing. I, it, it, that is erased from my, my head. So those were rough moments. That was not easy to 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 even reconcile. How how do you reconcile to representing a, a a country and a government that is uh, that is violating human rights, that is killing people, killing your own friends, or, or torturing your own people, members of your family, or members of your you know close network? It, it was um, it was not an easy decision, and that's one of the reasons I decided to write the book. By the way. To precisely to explain how that happened uh, and how difficult it was, I have to admit it that it was it was difficult. And you you mentioned that your family chose to leave before you did. Obviously, you were representing the national team, but you still had several friends in Chile. So how how tough of a decision was it when it finally reached that that breaking point where you decided that you you finally needed to leave and, and join your family here in Canada? It, it was uh, not a difficult decision because. I began to work for the Chilean Olympic Committee. In a, they had a sports school a, a modeling after the, uh, at the time, the socialist countries. Uh, they had a, a sports schools in East Germany and in Poland and in Hungary. And, and so uh, modeling after that, they decided to create a sports schools in, in Chile as well. And I was uh, hired to coach those young kids. Um, so as I was finishing my FISET degree, I was in the national, senior national team and I was working as a coach for, for this school. And, um, and it was under the, the, the umbrella of the Chilean Olympic Committee. And the Chilean Olympic Committee, well, all institutions were basically uh, full of military people. They were in charge of absolutely everything, including sports, of course. And in one of the meetings, uh, one day... Uh, my father here in Canada, here in Toronto, was publishing a newspaper called Opinion, Opinion. And in the newspaper was an anti-dictatorship paper, of course. But the, but the paper made their way to Chile. And so in one of the meetings, uh, one military person uh, opened uh, his briefcase and says, uh, look at what the father of Mr. Humana is doing in, in Canada against our government. Uh, we should cut Mr. Humana's throat. Uh, instead of they were discussing that I was doing such a good job that they should give me a raise or something along those lines was the, the what my friend conveyed to me. Uh, but then he said he called me that night after the meeting and said, "Flaco, uh, you have to get out of the country. This is over. You, they are going to go after you, and and, and, and your life is on the line here." So that was the the turning point um, in less than a week. And unfortunately, in that period, also I had finished my degree uh, with the university, so. I, 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 that period was done and I, and I left. I left uh, right away and that was six years after my family had been here in Canada. So I came to join the family in this beautiful country of ours. Wow. Wow. I feel like we could discuss this for hours, but uh, I'm going to leave it as a, as a cliffhanger there for our listeners. And that's once again, playing under the gun and, and we'll leave that in the show notes if they want to buy a copy. Cause I feel like we're just, we're getting into it and there's a lot of in-depth and, and very interesting stories. It's very well written, but uh, we, we have some other things to get to. So when you arrive in Canada, you mentioned you're already coaching in Chile. Was Scarborough Solars your first landing spot or were you still playing when you got here? Like what was your relationship with volleyball when you first moved to Canada? Well, um, I arrived in 1980 in the summer in April, uh, middle of April. As all the all the leagues had finished by then, and uh, 
uh, there were a group of people playing, getting together uh, at a school um, in, in Eglinton and, and Young in that area. They used to, I don't know, you rent or they have access to a gymnasium. And that, and among those people, they were, I remember, uh, uh, Dave Chambers, who uh, was the setter at York University. It was uh, uh, Buma, as I call him, and George Shermer. It was, um, they were uh, a bunch of very eclectic group of, of guys who were, uh, it was a club called, called Metro. I remember a team called Metro. And, and, and so they were members of that club. And, and they invited me, or oh, I, I came and my brother Rod was in the Scarborough Solars Club. He was playing, uh, he was a juvenile player at the time. And, um, and so he, they, they kind of, okay, well, come, come over. And, and they saw me, I was still playing. So I was at a, at a pretty good, you know, level. And, uh, and they grabbed me. And so I, I started playing with them. And then the summer came and I played a bit of beach volleyball with uh, Mark Ainsworth uh, and, uh, Balmy Beach there, where, where John May was organizing see, the first little tournaments there with four chords. And, uh, so um, so I, I, I was playing, but remember, I, uh, I haven't told you that, but I didn't know a word of English. I, English was non-existent for me. I couldn't. But fortunately, my brother Rod, who had been here for already six years, he was my, my translator and he was also a volleyball player. And through him is that I got the job at the Scarborough Solars. At the time in Canada, Scarborough Solars was maybe the largest volleyball club. They had a lot of teams and, and, and players didn't have to pay. They had a bingo that was extremely financially very good. Uh, and so the, the players didn't have to pay to play uh, volleyball. It was, it was free. And the coaches didn't get paid a lot. I don't think that I got paid a lot. It was Back then, it was the same like it is now. It gets, you know, a $2,000 honorarium for the whole year or $1,000 or something like that. But for me, it was great to have the opportunity to coach because I love to coach. Uh, and I was, um, you know, beginning my coaching career. And uh, and uh, so, so yeah, uh, Diane Wood, who ended up being the technical director of the Ontario Volleyball Association, she was in charge of, of the Scarborough Solars. And, and I don't know how or why they hired me because, as I said, I couldn't put two words together. I didn't know any English word. It, it was it was incredible. I, the interview to be hired as a coach, uh, Rod was uh, translating, uh, you know, back and forth. And, uh, and somehow they thought I could do it. And so they hired me. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, and Rod was my assistant. Uh, I remember Rod was uh, became my assistant, uh, um, and I needed him because. Uh, but also, it allowed me to to push, you know, learning the language faster. It was an incentive that I had to to learn uh, quick. So yeah, so I joined the Scarborough Solars and the club. The, the team that I was coaching was the Apollo, uh, the Apollo, which was the juvenile team. Yeah, that's very interesting because through the show, we've talked to athletes who are, are known as a foreigner on their club teams overseas, and sometimes they don't speak the same language as the coach, and they're on the outside. This is one of our first experiences where the coach doesn't speak the language. So uh, I'm curious because anyone who's seen you coach now, obviously one of the, the your best gifts as a coach, I feel, is your ability to create relationships and really communicate with the athlete and make them feel valued and really, you know, coach them up in those one-on-one situations. So did your style really progress or, or how did it change during those times where you couldn't have those one-on-one conversations with the athletes? You know, at times I think that I was a better athlete back then, I mean, coach, because um, 
I didn't talk very much. And, uh, and at times, coaches tend to talk maybe too much. So <laughs> I thought, uh, for me, it worked very well. I remember one of my first practices with the team. Uh, I, what I did was I shook hands with each one of them. I went one by one and I shook their hands and I looked straight into their eyes. I, needed, I didn't need to talk. Uh, some of those players have told me afterwards, uh, you know, this is the first time that a coach have, you know, have shaken my hand. I, I, I never, and, and, and I felt that you genuinely, you, you cared about us. That, that, that was your way of, of telling us, you know, we are together in this one. And so communication was different. Was a, you know, I, I couldn't express it verbally, but, but uh, I, I developed the ability to express it uh, with my my eyes and my body language and, uh, and and how I was, you know, telling them how to do things uh, by by just showing them. This is this is how you hit the ball. This is how you pass. This is, um, and so on and so forth. So I think it, it was a, a, an interesting challenge, but uh, one that uh, the players and, and myself uh, were able to raise to 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 meet um, that challenge. Now, one athlete you made a, a very strong impression on was John Child. And when we had his beach partner, Marquise, on the show, he told a hilarious story where they qualify for the 96 games and it asked them to list a coach. And, and John and Mark honestly thought this was a mistake. And they submitted the form without a coach being like, there's no coaches in beach volleyball. We don't need one. And then the form comes back. No, no, you, you need to list a coach. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how the conversation happened, but John recommended you. Um, do you remember how they approached you or what the conversation was? Was it a simple, Mark seems to think that John just called you and said, hey, Hernan, it's John calling. Uh, listen, we're going to the Olympics. Do you want to come too? Or how, how in-depth was this first conversation when they approached you to be the, their beach coach? Because they had already been a strong beach team. And like Mark said, there wasn't coaching on the beach. So this was going to be a brand new role for you to kind of lead in Canada, right? Well, <laughs> you're right. Uh, not only uh, they were being asked to coach, they, they were not coaches in beach volleyball back then, not only Canada, nowhere. Uh, players, uh, and, and players took a lot of pride in not having coaches, in that they were in charge of the, the whole situation. So when John and Mark were forced, basically, by the Canadian Olympic Committee to select a, a coach, John thought about me, not because I knew beach volleyball. I, I didn't know beach volleyball. Nobody, uh, you know, who was not playing, uh, nobody knew beach volleyball unless you played it. And um, so John uh, convinced, kind of convinced Mark. Mark was not so sold out, by the way, that I was going <laughs> to be the coach. Um, he was very skeptical of, well, who is this guy? And I never had a chance to coach Mark indoor as I did with John. With John, we won the Canadian Championship. So it, we had, I had a lot of successes coaching John and, and, and that team. So John thought, well, I know he's a good coach. I know he knows how to relate to people. He knows how to get the best out of them. And, uh, and we teach him the, the sport. Uh, and that was the, the unique partnership in which the players knew more than the coach uh, about the sport. And, and, and I knew about coaching. And so that was a good uh, marriage. That was a very good marriage. But the call was, uh, yeah, you're right, along the lines of, Arnand, we're going to the Olympics. Uh, you know, do you want to come with us? <laughs> and I go, what? What are you talking about? Are you serious? I remember Felipe was uh, my, uh, Felipe was very young. He was maybe two years old or three years old at the time. And um, so I had to talk to uh, my wife, of course, uh, back then. And, uh, and she was pregnant. I remember Melissa was, uh, she was pregnant with Melissa. 
Uh, and so it was in the middle of a lot of uh, busy, hectic uh, times at home. And I said, well, let me talk to my wife. I need to discuss with her this uh, incredible opportunity here. Um, I had already been at the Olympics, by the way. I was in 1992. I was with the indoor men's team in Barcelona. So I had Olympic experience. So that's the other side of the, what John was selling to Mark. I said, Mark, listen, you know, this guy has been at the Olympics. So he already has Olympic experience. Uh, we can, uh, you know, he, we're having here uh, the right uh, combination. And, uh, and so, as I said, I, I know reluctantly Mark said yes, but uh, uh, they were, as I said, so proud and rightly so, so proud that they have qualified for the Olympics by themselves and uh, with no help from anyone, especially coaches. So having to uh, have this guy and, and and that also for me was a, a big paradigm change, if you will. But I mean, for me was... Uh, and I opened it to be in a situation in which the players knew more than, than me uh, as a coach. Uh, and so it, it put me in a, in, a, in, a, in a different level. I was not above them or we were all equal here. This was a partnership. This was not a, you know, a, a lineal, uh, I am the, the boss and you follow what I said. They did follow what I said, by the way, but not because I, I, was, I knew more. Or, or I knew more in other areas. I knew more physiology. I knew more how to, you know, uh, prepare the body for for intense uh, competition and all that. But uh, but definitely, I didn't know uh, the sport. So that was a, a learning curve that, that was going to happen. Yeah, there was a, a moment that I thought of you the other day. I was watching a soccer documentary and Jose Marino was the coach and he was explaining to his squad that the next drill they were going to do, if they've ever, ever done it before, it was copyright to him. He invented this drill and other coaches have stole it from him. And I thought of you immediately because you, you mentioned you're one of the, the first, if not the first beach coaches in Canada where we've always joked there's activities going on at Ashbridge's Bay that some people might not give you credit for, but they're doing your drills, right? Because it was honestly at that point in beach volleyball that you were modifying or inventing drills because nobody had ever really trained, right? Like, I feel like there, there was a sense that people would go down to the beach and maybe play, play matches or play sets, but were teams really training or drilling it out at that time? <laughs> that, that's fascinating what you just said. No, nobody was training. Uh, training was, to, uh, you know, for wimps. Uh, you play, you go to the beach <laughs> and you play and you trash talk, you know, and uh, it was fascinating. It was a great culture. Everybody was making fun of everybody. I mean, think about the people, that the, the John Mays and the Frank Glasses and everybody was, you know, fat talkers and, and, and trash talkers and it, it was it was fun to be around. But, but drills? Are you kidding me? It's like, uh, this is not about drills, you know. Uh, this was about learning by playing. And, and there are many theories, uh, as you know, that uh, uh, promote the idea that you learn better by just playing. And, and John Bishop-Lever was a good example of that. You learn as you play. But but we mix. We, we, we mix it. I brought, as you said, I started developing a lot of drills that I had never seen before. Where it was just coming out of, of my head, and, and then I saw them uh, later, uh, in later years, you know, other people doing it, and they had no idea that, that you know, uh, we have been doing that for uh, quite a few years before that. So it was, uh, everything that we did was new, basically. I, I remember talking to physiologists uh, at York. I had some colleagues. Uh, I was already at York, and so I was talking to some of them on how to develop a jump, for instance, on, on the sand. 
it was nothing there. It was, uh, and I still today there is little in terms of research. Uh, but how do you develop, you know, your jumping abilities on the sand? And we had tons of discussions with people, experts in biomechanics and in physiology, and and uh, and in the end, uh, I thought uh, I, we did what I thought it was the right thing to do, and and, and I was right. You have to train jumping on the sand, on the sand, not on hard surface. But there were many, uh, you know, when people start trying to do weight training to some of the beach volleyball, people said, uh, we'll do the training on, on hard surface. I said, no, 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 that you don't do anything on hard surface. You don't run on hard surface. You you can do squats in hard surface. I don't mind that or, or upper body. But when it comes to running, moving, jumping, and all of that is on the sand. If we have to do it on a on a, uh, on a sandbox in a in a playground, we'll do it there. But we'll add sand somewhere to do it. So I was I was adamant that 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 I was not going to compromise, and that was based on principles, coaching principles. You know, you do it uh, in, in the in the environment that you're going to perform it. It's as simple as that. Now, one thing that I found fascinating, and just speaking to Mark and John over the years, and also having Mark on the show, is they really treat confidence and determination as a skill and I'm wondering was this some of your influence in practice or how do you think they developed this this toughness where Mark even quoted John on the show being like he just had this attitude that no matter what was happening no matter what external stuff was happening John just had its attitude of I'm not losing I am not going to lose this game somehow some way he was going to find a way and Mark with his secret workouts and you know his father being an Olympian he just had this this toughness about him that he always was able to add you know this action to his belief and he could really anchor to certain things so I'm wondering do you deserve some credit? I know you're probably not going to take it, but was there anything you were doing in training that really helped them develop this? Or was this something that they were honestly just very gifted at as people that they brought into volleyball? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to take any credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what we did uh, when John was under me in, in, in indoor, that team was able to buy into what I was trying to sell them. And that was this fierce determination to just never, never, never give up, giving up. And we played, uh, we, we did something very, very smart, and that was not also my idea. That was uh, Diane and the people in the Scarborough Solar Institution. We played in, on Sundays, I remember, in a, in a seniors league. We were, these kids were all in high school, grade 11, grade 12. And, uh, and we played these old guys, many of them coming from Eastern Europe. Uh, that they were still playing, and they were, you know, they had all the tricks in the books, and uh, and they were not that athletic anymore, but they knew how to play. So, our, you know, the kids were just jumping hard and moving fast, but they were making a stupid mistakes because they were learning the game. But we learned so much from those those old timers or from from those old people, um, and I think that that was good training ground. And I will point it out to them. They said, well, "Why did we lose that game against those old guys? Look at how old they are. They can barely move. They don't jump anymore, and yet." They, they, they are thinking the game in a way that we need to learn how to think the game. So, so I think I had uh, the, 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 the opportunity, I guess, in many ways, and the, the luck to, to, to expose my players to, to, to those type of experiences. Uh, but our practices, you talk to them, and, and, and I still am in touch with many of them, they, they can tell you that those practices were very hard. I, I, I did very hard practices. I was not a, a coach today, especially after winning tournaments. And I, that was something that just came out to me, that after winning tournaments, we won a lot of tournaments. Almost every weekend, we, 
every time we play, we won. Whether we play juvenile or junior, because we play up in junior, we won the provincial championship in junior as well, uh, being a juvenile team. But after winning the next practice, I will just destroy. They knew that after winning, they were going to be killed in practice. Um, and, and I don't know where that came from, from to, to me, that idea that after a good tournament, I needed to kill them, basically, to humble them, to put them down on, on, the, on the ground and basically tell them, yeah, you won, but guess what? You're not that good yet. You're, you are on the way to be good, but you're not that good yet. Yeah, that reminds me of a, of a story. I've had many dinners with John Child over the years, just being a part of Leaside Volleyball Club. And one thing that stood out was you mentioned you're at national championships, and that was an era where you still had to qualify. So you're big bad Ontario, and I believe you're playing in East Coast school. And they kind of were going through the motions, and sure, they just won. And you mentioned in your debrief that that was disrespectful to the game, where you guys were viewed upon being this top team, and you didn't show your opponent respect, and you were you were a better team than that, and you kind of played to their level where everybody – you know, knew you were at a higher level. So was that a big thing, no matter if you're coaching like Olympians like Mark and John or even a club team at Solars, that you were going to respect the game and there was this 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 honor or nobility in putting your best effort forward no matter who's across the net? That was that was a very important principle. I, I remember I remember vividly stressing that that you can be the team 15-0, 15-0, you do it. That is that shows respect for the team and for the sport. If you fool around and, uh, and and don't beat them to the best of your abilities, you are not uh, respecting them uh, and the sport. And I remember uh, saying that. And, uh, and I remember also one tournament in which they were not responding. And I think it was early in the season. And uh, and it was early in my coaching career, too. And uh, here, kind of... And I, I was playing for York University at the time, had a, a club. Uh, so they had the varsity team, but also a club team. And, and in the club, there were people who were not in, in the university. We, we were either not students at the university or, or high school. John Barrett was one of the players. Eddie Drakish was one of the players. John Ionidas was another player. And myself, we were four players who were the foreigners, if you will. They were not members of the varsity team. Um, but we played for York. And uh, we were playing in Dalhousie, I remember, a, a tournament. And it was for clubs. It was not university uh, tournament. And... Uh, and Wally was coaching, and uh, Mark, Mark Gainsworth was one of the most, uh, you know, combative, very uh, aggressive player. And, and, and for some reason, Wally takes him out in the middle of the game. I, again, I, I, my English was almost non-existent uh, back then. And, and Mark work, walks out of the court so upset, and he, he tells Wally, "Are yours, Wally?" And in my Years, what I hear him saying was, smell your ass, Wally. Don't ask me how, uh, from up yours, I, I understood the smell your ass. <laughs> but I never told anyone, and I remember that particular time when my team was not playing well. And so, uh, you know, after the game, uh, we were having a team meeting, and I was very upset. And, and so I, I look at them, and I said, you know what? Smell your ass, all of you. And they started laughing their brains out. And I thought, well, what, what's wrong with this picture? I thought, smell your ass was a bad thing, you know? Why, why are they laughing about it? And, and then I learned that, obviously, the saying was, of yours, it was not a smell your ass. <laughs> and, uh, but, but the issue was that they were not playing at the level that they were so, supposed to be playing at, uh, back then. So, yeah. <laughs> That's in the new book, by the way. There is a new book on the way out that I'm working on, and those stories are all in the new in the new book. 
Oh, amazing. I can't wait. And that reminds me, I, I do have to ask a question on, on behalf of a friend of the show, Dallas Keith. He mentioned, he wants you to finally confirm or deny, have you ever hit the roof at York University? He thinks there's a special club and he feels like in your playing days, you were a part of that. Confirm or deny, did you ever bounce a ball high enough to hit the roof at York University? The answer is yes. Okay, you're in the club. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. Do you... Do you think you were one of the first? Like, that's a very hard club to be a part of. Dallas seems to think that you might have been one of the originals. I, again, I came to Canada in 1980, so I don't know the past story, to tell you the truth. So I, I know I, I, I was uh, watching a game. It was who was playing Poland. Poland and Canada, uh, the senior teams in an exhibition game at York. And he went, one of the Polish guys hit the, hit the ceiling in the, in the main gym. And that was, wow, that was pretty impressive. Uh, so impressive that the guy didn't start. He was not a starter in the team, <laughs> in the Polish team. Uh, everybody was kind of, what? He's not playing? He's not even, I think he was just a, a strong hitter, not very smart or not good passer. I don't know. I don't know why he didn't play. I didn't speak Polish to ask <laughs> the, the Polish coach. <laughs> Uh, I got us off topic there, but to bring us back there, there's just one more moment I want to bring up from the Marquise interview, and, and I thought this was extremely powerful. He mentioned after you lose that first match, and, and Mark admits he didn't play well, and, and he goes into the team meeting thinking, you know, he's going to get questioned, why didn't you do this, why didn't you do that, there, there was going to be blame thrown around, and, and one thing that he felt really picked him up was... You and John and Mark both made this plan and it was, what are we going to do about it? And here's all the work we put into it and we're in the right spot and here's what we're going to do to recover. Like there, there wasn't a lot of boohoo or what was me in that meeting. And, I, and I'm curious how you, you facilitated this meeting, how you led this meeting, because I think it's easier said than done when you finally get to the Olympics and you play your first match and you just for lack of a better term, you almost get embarrassed by your performance. And and for you and John not to throw him I under... Get embarrassed. <laughs> you, you get embarrassed. I don't want to put words <laughs> in your mouth, but uh, how do you regroup and control the message and say, we're fine. Here's what we're going to do about it. Like we're on the biggest stage we've ever been on and, and it'd be it'd be baloney in Mark's word to say, oh, it's just the Olympics, blah, 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 blah. Like it's just another game. It's not. It's the Olympics. So how did you decide to steer the meeting that way or how did you get John and Mark on board that you know everything's going to be okay we've put our work in here's what we're going to do about it now I remember right after that happened when, uh, after that game and, um, John was livid and he didn't walk towards us he walked away by himself and, and JP we were sitting with JP JP came to me and said Hernan uh, you want me to talk to the guys and he was our mental trainer he was the and I said, no, I don't want you to talk to the guys. I, I, I'll talk to them. And so Mark came. We shook hands or high five. And uh, we were silent for a while until we got uh, John back uh, from his walk. He needed to be on his own for a while. But we had a game coming up. Um, uh, you know, the, we went through the losing bracket, and it was another game against Sweden um, in the same day in a few hours. So we needed to get ready. And so to me, it was, uh, well, uh, um, I was so lucky or, or, or well, we were lucky that it was a, a, another option, another opportunity here uh, on the double elimination system. Um, and so my job as a coach was to prepare them for the next game. Um, and, 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 and the first game was so, uh, how can I put it? It was nothing to grab. It was nothing that you could say, that, you know, 
let's rescue this from the game. And it, it, it was all to be put behind. It was nothing that you could say, you know, uh, because we didn't do anything well. It was, it was, it was pointless to even discuss what had happened. It, it was nothing to be rescued, in other words. Uh, and so the only option, uh, and, and again, some of these decisions are, are done on the spot. And, and not with, uh, they are very uh, organic, if you will. They come uh, on the at uh, there on the spot at the moment. They are not that uh, they are very thought out and and you know this is a plan. And, no, no, no. That, that that just came out on the spot to to focus on the next game and, and and it was very much along the lines of what we have been training. Anyways, mindfulness. You know, whatever happened, it's in the past. And, and, and all you have is this moment. So let's use this moment to prepare for the next the next game. So I think JP had already done his job of, of uh, you know, teaching us mindfulness and, and to be present and to be present at that particular moment, not to dwell on the past or to worry too much about the future. So I think it was just in that in that framework, if you will, is that uh, we we decided let's move on, let's focus on the next game and and prepare and start thinking what we're going to do. So as I said, I don't think that it was, uh, uh, I mean, it worked out brilliantly, but but it was not, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, a, a deep thinking process. Not at all. It was far more visceral than that. And I'm curious if you recall how you prepared for the match against Karch. And the reason I bring that up is, is people remember in that era, the USA thought essentially that their domestic tour was better than the world tour. Like Karch didn't qualify for the Olympics through the FIB. He was an AVP guy and the games were in the US. And here's this, this rock star of volleyball and you're playing them on home soil. And, you know, he's just already won a gold medal at the Olympics and indoor. And he's this larger than life person. So when you're describing in the, the meeting before the game, like, are you shying away from saying how good he is? Are you approaching what we can do about it? Like, how do you approach a moment that big where you're playing? Like I said, like possibly the greatest player of all time. Like how do you deliver the message without, you know, sugarcoating it or tiptoeing around certain things? Um, I think that, that that's a great question. And that I think my, my biggest regret as a coach, uh, my biggest mistake as well, I would say. I remember talking um, when we were planning and getting ready for the Olympics, we talk about that possibility. What about if we meet with Karch and Ken, Ken Steffes, uh, uh, at the Olympics, and, and both of them, John and Mark said, oh, "No way, Hernan. You, you don't know how good those guys are. We, we have, we, we cannot do anything against them. This is their way to do." Um, and and we never saw them. I never saw them. I and, and, and because they were, as you said, they qualified through the AVP, not through the FIVB. So, so, and I didn't challenge them, and that was my my mistake. I didn't say, well, "Hold on, when when we get into the court." The chances, uh, even if they are the best team in the world, uh, in a sport, there is always the opportunity for an upset. So we have to think that even if we play the best team in the world, we can we can beat them. Well, it has to be our approach. So uh, as I said, I didn't challenge them then, and I didn't challenge them in the semifinals when we played them at the Olympics, because the, the feeling was that, well, okay, let's let's do our best um, as opposed to let's go and beat them, which it should have been. The, the, the comment and this is how we are going to beat them. We kind of shy away from that, and and that was that was my mistake as as a leader of the team. I should have been uh, because by then I I had learned the sport and I I think and, and this was coaching more than anything else. So I should have been more forceful and saying, well, hold on, 
here we have a clear opportunity to get into the final. Uh, and and uh, yeah, we are playing the best team in the world, but but uh, we are playing well, and, and we are doing some pretty good things. And and oddly enough, uh, I was reading Ken Ken Steffer has been publishing uh, putting some stuff in Facebook about his experiences, and and he admitted that uh, against us it, it was tough. It was a tough semifinal. They were beating us kind of rather seven two or eight three. I mean, they took a, a big advantage early on. And then we came back and, and, and forced them into a timeout, and so we we were there, we were in that game, but but uh, again a bit too late, and and with in the back of our minds we had the idea that just playing well against them was going to be um, enough, and, and that was that was so wrong, that was so wrong. That's again that's one of my regrets as a coach that uh, I didn't, you know, presented a different situation to, to the players and, and, and I, I was unable to sell them the, the, that it was possible to beat even though they were the best team and they won the world medal and all of that but uh, but we we had a, we had our chances against them and and, uh, and uh, by the time we realized that we could have beaten them they were ahead in the game and uh, and they were good no doubt about it but uh, how many times how many times mark mark his block charge in the game you know I'm here of Two times, uh, and, and Ken two times. I mean, we were. <laughs> I mean, uh, unfortunately, it's not uh, easy to watch those games um, because it's not you cannot find them in the in the internet. But I know John has a copy of them, and I I, I have watched them. And it's painful to watch them because we we had a we we had a chance, we had a chance, and, and we blew it. And I'm, I'm sure it is. Hard to look back, like you said, and that would be a regret and something you would want to change. But in the context of what was happening in those moments, do you feel because you said you guys were equals and you weren't really the one voice and you're trying to give them autonomy? Is that why maybe you steered in their direction where they were just happy saying, like, we're going to give our best effort, but we know these guys are good? Like, is that maybe one, if there is a flaw of giving athletes that much autonomy and kind of being a part of the journey versus like the coach who's supposed to be the leader and maybe driving the bus? Is that maybe a, a possible flaw with the system or, or what would you say you would like to change if you could, other than maybe just challenging the idea? I think I could have challenged the idea. Yeah. I didn't have to be, you know, uh, you have to sell the idea too. Uh, I mean, you can say anything you want. The question is, are the players listening? Are they going to respond to, to your, uh, are, are you selling it properly? And I think uh, if I learned something with John and Mark, was that in order to sell something, you need to be convincing. You need to have good arguments. You need to have, uh, it's not enough to just work them hard and punish them in practice if they don't do what you want them to do. That's not going any longer anyways, especially from now on, I think, in a sport, um, that's definitely not the way to achieve maximum performance. Uh, and I hope it's never again. Uh, this crossing the line between, uh, as I said, pushing and pushing uh, uh, players, uh, to me, it's not about pushing them any longer. It's about uplifting them. You uplift them to, to new heights. They can perform to the best of their abilities. The idea of pushing to me is complicated today because by pushing them, and if you just look at what's going on, uh, the, the, the gymnastic coaches and the figure skaters who push athletes to the level of, of abuse, it's, it's verbal and physical abuse. Um, it, it's, uh, it has been distorted, and I think players, and rightly so, athletes are beginning to uh, to uh, rebel, to say enough is enough. 
uh, that's not how I want to be trained any longer. And so I, I am glad there is a, a kind of a paradigm shift here in coaching. And, and the coaches who are hard-nosed coaches are, are beginning to be less and less. We're beginning to highlight the, 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 the coaches who have shown respect for the sport and the, and the players. You know, the, 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 the Phil Jackson, the, the, the John Woody's, the Barry Boschers, the, the, the coaches who respect athletes and, and, and they know how to get you know, uh, results by uplifting them, by make, making them feel great about themselves, not making them feel guilty or, or, or competing and, and playing hard out of fear. Uh, that's that's not any longer the way to do it. Uh, it. It never was, but that was the that was the way most coaches, including me, uh, used to coach by by punishing and, and instilling fear in the players. Uh, that's to me uh, not any longer. That's not the way to coach. And and Melissa has never been coached that way. Um, and and I, I don't know about Sarah, but I know Melissa and and uh, you, you see they are number one in the world and world champions and all of that. And so. So I think, again, there are very good examples today of, of great performances without being abused, without being pushed in the wrong way. Yeah, I was hoping you could give myself and the other coaches listening maybe a tip of how you walk this line. And I think John May does it really well, where you both, you have credibility. And like you said, you're, you're selling this idea, but it's never fluffy where the athlete, maybe they're in that tough moment and, oh, coach is telling me I'm this great hitter and I'm so smart, but I just got blocked three times in a row. Like they never have that moment of question where they're like, oh, he's just, you know, blowing smoke. He doesn't know what he's talking about, where you, you mentioned you believe in the athlete and you push them, but it's never... It's never built on a foundation of lies or you're just trying to pump their tires for no reason. You find these credible sources. So I'm wondering when you're doing this, are you honestly just looking for opportunities in training to catch them doing it right? Or where do you build these foundation pieces for, like I said, in those clutch moments when it doesn't come through, they don't begin to question your credibility. And if you know what you're talking about or if they just think you're a liar who is this cheerleader and pump them up when really there was no substance there. That's a very tricky question, and, and it's a good one. And I think the, the answer is it's, it's not just one answer. I think each player will require something different, but all of them will require one common thing, and that is honesty, honesty from the coach. So you, as you said, you cannot tell a player, well, you're doing so well, and you're so good, and you're going. Not every player is good, uh, but what you're trying to attempt is to maximize whatever they have with them. Uh, and you're trying to to make the best out of what they have, and and and, and even exceed it at times uh, and go go beyond that, but never uh, being dishonest. Uh, I mean, we humans are are easy to manipulate. Look at what seventy million people in the states voted for Trump, talking about being easily manipulated. <laughs> but uh, um, I think the the issue is to 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 be to be truthful, to be honest. But also to to get into a contract, a contract that will together um, make the best out of this situation for you to be the best attacker or the best passer, the best server, the best that that you can possibly be, and and, and, and even beyond that, you'll discover things about yourself that you didn't know they existed. Uh, and so it's a, it's a constant process in which you are trying to convey um, ideas and ideas of, of reassurance. Uh, and the first step is to make them feel good about themselves, not by lying, but by by truly uh, remarking and, and underlying uh, the things that they are good at and, and underlying the areas that they need to improve on, of course. I, I, I think honesty is, is by far um, uh, 
the recipe here to, to get performance, and not just in a sport, in anything in life, including relationships, including you know other subjects. And so, so I think um, there, there is a humanity side here that is that is it's fascinating. And and uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I used to tell, and this was very basic, but I used to tell my players is when you are very tired in the middle of a practice or, or in a game. And you tell me, coach, you know what, I, I'm done. I cannot move anymore. Um, and, and unfortunately, those things don't happen. Or fortunately, they don't happen here in Toronto. But in Chile, we used to have a lot of earthquakes. They still have a lot of earthquakes. And believe me, you can be very, very tired. But when an earthquake comes, you're going to run pretty fast. <laughs> and so, uh, so, in other words, you always have a reservoir within you, uh, both physically and mentally, that you can always do something better um, if you are put in a situation that, you know, and, and, and again, convinced that that is the next step for you, that you can actually do things that you never thought you were capable of doing. And as a coach, your job is to convince them and, and to, to, to discuss it. And, but as I said, you don't need to lie to them. You don't need to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to sugarcoat it. And uh, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. Again, we won a bronze medal at the Olympic. We won an Olympic medal by by being very honest with each other. And it could have been better. Sure, it could have been better. But again, kudos to Karch. I mean, one of the best players ever to play the sport, both indoor and beach. Um, it's. Uh, I think, and that's why there are some players who are better than others. <laughs> it's. Uh, but maximizing it, I think, is what is the secret. Maximizing and, and also telling them you can do even better than that at times, um, given the, the, the situations and the circumstances. So, yeah, and just so, to... so, so uplifting, I think, is the word. Respect and uplifting as opposed to pushing. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. And just to clarify for the listeners, I mean, they, they might be sitting back and saying, well, yeah, you coach at a national team level and a university level. It must be easy. But to confirm, I, I, you use this approach, whether you're coaching 14U, Olympians or university athletes, right? Like your approach doesn't change no matter the level of the athlete. Is that fair to say? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. You're right. Amazing. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I'm looking at my list here. I didn't get to half the topics I wanted to, but I did promise you an hour, which means we'll have to have you uh, as a returning guest. And I'm, I'm glad you gave us that teaser that there is another book in the works. That could be great timing to have you back on. Um, with that, though, we always like to end the show with a funny story. And you've told some some good stories here. I was wondering if you could share one more with us where you, you got this wonderful or maybe funny or odd experience that you don't think you otherwise would have gotten if you weren't a part of volleyball at a high level. So can you just leave us with a, another laugh or something interesting before we let you go? Fair enough. I, I thought about uh, a few of the stories. Well, I already told you the smell your ass, man, which is, uh, which is one of the funny, but uh, there are so many, uh, but you know what? I'm going to finish with a story that it's, uh, um, it's not that funny, but it's very unique, and, and it happened uh, obviously because of volleyball. Um, I was playing for the for the national team in Chile, and we went to play in Bolivia. Bolivia is a, a, a country that uh, 150 years ago uh, Chile fought a war against them, and, and there is still a bit of animosity, you know, between Chileans and Bolivians because of that war. Uh, so we went to play, um, and um, and Bolivia. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the, the capital city, La Paz, is, is 3,900 meters above the sea level. I mean, it, it's it's 
3,900, almost 4,000 meters above the sea level. It's, it's uh, the lack of oxygen. It, it's unbelievable. So anyhow, so we, we went to play there. And, uh, and uh, we played the first game, and it was very difficult to, 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 to even to breathe. But then they invited us to play even further higher, at 4,100 meters in a, in a small mining town called Oruro. And so we went to play to this small town, uh, and even less oxygen. We were just uh, hard to walk, let alone to play a game. And so we started playing, and uh, it was an open uh, court. Uh, it has some seatings around, but it was open. It was not a gymnasium. They didn't have a gymnasium in that town. And the police was kind of, they were, they looked like soldiers to me. They had machine guns and they were kind of around the court and, and the people were very hostile to us, incredible hostile. They were screaming and yelling against Chileans and you bloody Chileans. And, and on top of that, we started winning. We were playing well that day. And we were beating the, the Bolivian team and it started raining. I remember it started raining and so the, the game did not stop. They were hoping that we were going to, to start losing. Um, but the people got up. I remember the people got up and started throwing things to us. And the military that were supposed to protect us, instead of protecting us, they started, uh, you know, inciting the people to come and, and into the court and, and beat us up. And so we were, kind of, what, the, what do we do now? Here we are 12 Chileans and they were, I don't know, uh, 500, uh, uh, you know, Bolivians. And some of them were also drunk. I mean, you, you, this was a very few opportunities for any spectacle up, up there. Uh, so they, fortunately, they, they, we, by then we were kind of close to the Bolivian players and they created a shield around us. They protected us. They put it, you know, I said, and told the people, come on, you know, no, stop this. So they walk us out of the area to the bus, that the bus that was waiting for us to go back to the hotel. And we got into the bus, both Chileans and Bolivians, and the people who were still upset that we were kind of winning. And, and I truly thought at that time that that was the end of our career as volleyball players. We were we are not coming alive out of this one. We were looking at each other like, wow, this is bad. Um, fortunately, the, 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 the bus driver was uh, very skillful at that. He was able to, you know, go around the crowd and without killing anyone and just speed it away. And, and uh, we arrived in the hotel. I, I, I have to tell you, I've never been so scared in my life. I thought, and, and, and everybody in the same boat. I, I thought that was the end of it. I, 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 you know, I was, I was very young <laughs> tonight, but, but playing volleyball. So at least playing volleyball, you know, what a better way to die than playing volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Another amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that one. Well, it's been an hour. Like I said, I feel like we could go on for a few more hours, but uh, I know you're a busy guy and a good family man, and you got maybe some more classes at York to prep. I know it's a weird time to be a prof, but I'm sure you're busy doing that as well. So we'll, we'll call it there, but I want to thank you again for coming on the show and for everything you do for volleyball. I think you're you're one of the few people in our sports that doesn't have enemies, and I think it's because of, of your genuine spirit and the way you're always available to help and just your, your love for the sport. So thanks for being a part of everything that you are, and thanks for joining us today. Josh, a pleasure. A pleasure to talk, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me.